Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Kirsten Stevens is a violinist with a wide range of style. You're currently listening to her play, Best Part. It's a song from her latest album, Queen Rising, and it covers the R&B song by Daniel Caesar and the artist, Her. Queen Rising is a jazz album, and it features eight-time Grammy Award-winning bassist Christian McBride. Classical, jazz, and R&B are just a few of the genres that Kirsten brings together to create her own unique style. It's a style that, as you'll hear in this episode, was shaped by her Connecticut upbringing. This hour, we're talking about Connecticut and music. Later, we'll hear from a DJ who wants to give support to women DJs in ways that she never received. We'll also hear from the team that's behind an upcoming documentary on the New Haven music venue, Toad's Place. They'll tell us about how venues like Toad's can help bring people together. But first, Kirsten Stevens is a musician known as the Queen of the Violin. Kirsten, welcome to Disrupted. Yes, good morning. It is great to be here with you, Kalila. I'm excited to talk to you uh, for a number of reasons, but for our listeners so that they know, I first heard you play some years ago when you were an undergraduate student at Yale, and I believe it was a program called like Classically Black or something. And I was blown away by you as an artist. But when you play, there's this smile that creeps across your face that you can tell how connected you are to the music and to the opportunity to bring people together. How did you get started playing the violin? Um, so it was actually my mother who started me playing the violin. Uh, I was three years old and she put me in a kinder rhythms class. In the kinder rhythms class, they introduce you to generally all of the instruments And I ended up with a violin, but I mean, safely, right? So I ended up with a violin, um, a fake violin. It was a cereal box with a ruler taped to it. And I would play, put that on my shoulder. And then I had another ruler that I was supposed to pretend I was playing the bow. Um, And I know that at some point um, shortly thereafter, a violin, a real violin was placed in my hand. Um, And as I'm from Connecticut, I started uh, started studying um, violin at what was then the Bethwood Suzuki School in Cheshire, Connecticut. I'm listening to you recount that journey. I started the Suzuki method of playing violin when I was three, gave it a good two-year run and thought, uh, I want to do something else and ended up playing the saxophone ever since. Okay. So I'm like, oh, that's yeah. great. Nowhere as talented alto, though. Alto saxophone? Alto saxophone was my instrument of choice. It, it spoke to me. I thought it was this cool thing to do. You mentioned growing up in Connecticut, which, you know, there's a proximity in the region to greatness and to music. And I also wonder, being a brilliant brown girl in Connecticut, playing the violin across different genres, I imagine also had its own sort of twist and turns. 
What's the imprint of Connecticut on your musical journey and how you have pursued this passion? Yeah, I mean, I think you you said it right there. Uh, one, the proximity to New York as the epicenter of the jazz world, one of the epicenters of, of the jazz world. Um, but I also think that Connecticut in and of itself offers a lot of incredible opportunities for music education, right? And so this is, I was three years old and I'm not trying to age or date myself, but we're talking about the middle eighties, right? And so even at that point, um, it wasn't very hard for my mother to find the violins that I needed, the teachers I needed, and that's proximity to Yale University, right? Um, But then also I grew up in Fairfield County and I I do want to recognize that um, growing up in Stratford, when I grew up, there was not a string program. However, the year I graduated from high school, they had started that string program. Uh, And so I ended up teaching the students in the program that year and they would come up to Yale and study with me. Um, Last part I'll share is uh, the church network. So part of how I became a gospel musician uh, was in one, learning the hymns, but also um, playing in and around the various churches in Fairfield County and working with those different musicians and each one of them challenging me in different ways. So, you know, Connecticut really positioned me very well to, to become the artist I am today. One of the things that I appreciated about you sharing that background is that it speaks to the importance of community within Connecticut, the importance of network and connection, and how it can empower and enable students to move somewhat seamlessly across their interests. How would you describe who you are as a violinist and as a musician, given that you have this experience and expertise and background across? Well... I was actually thinking about this yesterday and I was thinking that there's an authenticity to one's artistry. And this is a long way of answering your question, but there's an authenticity to one's artistry um, to have come through various genres uh, and methodologies, if you will, um, just talking between Suzuki and jazz, there's a thousand different ways to study classical and jazz music, right? Um, to come through all of those different genres and influences and methodologies and then land on a sound that is yours, right? It doesn't mean that I don't love hip hop any less or gospel any less um, or jazz. I have I have love for each of them. They're almost like children, you know, you love all of them in different ways. <laughs> um, it's like that. And so I think as an artist, as a violinist um, at this point, I, the reason why I, I call myself the queen of the violin is because it's an amalgamation of all these different interests. And it wouldn't, it would be a disservice to call myself a gospel violinist or a jazz violinist or, or this, because every piece of those uh, genres have come, have fused together to make me the artist I am. Um, so I would say, I mean, if I had to put a definition, I would say that I'm an improv- improvis- improvisational violinist and artist. Um, performing musician uh, and uh, and today's uh, focus is in jazz, right? I've, over my career, I've had many different um, uh, pinpoints in what I'm doing. And right now it's very much jazz. I've always been a jazz artist though, you know, so I guess 
if I was forced to say I was a jazz violinist, I would say jazz violinist, but no jazz violinist becomes a jazz violinist without studying every other, at least every other black genre with a dash of rock and roll. Years from now, we'll be talking about the Kirsten Stevens genre. Let's talk about this newest project, which is within the jazz genre, but really represents who you are as an artist. This new album is called Queen Rising. Talk to us about that title and this project. Uh, Queen Rising, uh, it, it, it took all of me to rise above um, various challenges, uh, internal and external, right? And so I can go internal enough to say imposter syndrome and depression and uh, 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 lack of, I don't know, uh, what's the right word? Uh, Confidence, right? (laughs) Externally, uh, the pandemic and scheduling, and just general fortitude. And so this album uh, really speaks to what it takes to get past all of the stuff to get to that which is your high calling and your high purpose. And and then we'll talk, I think, a little bit more about uh, how I came to work with, with Christian McBride on this album. But the album itself, um, Queen Rising, I knew I wanted to talk about rising, rising above. I'll mention my best friend because we sat around the pool like over the summer. What rising, but what word goes with that? How do we put something with rising? Black rising? Is it soul rising? Is it, you know, and he left and I kept thinking about it for the rest of the night. And then all of a sudden I was looking at, I have it. you can't see this, but I have this whole whiteboard behind me that has all of these dreams and to do's and things. Um, And queen kept coming to me, queen, queen, queen. I said, what if it's queen rising? I'm sitting here in full transparency, smiling and welling up in this moment because, you know, for the the privilege of our listeners, I first met you many years ago when you were an undergraduate student. You mentioned your best friend who was one of my former students, you know, one of my advisees. And there's always been within you this maturity Right, like not just an intellectual maturity, but this maturity that also transcends generations. And to mm-hmm. think about for you to name those challenges of what it takes to overcome and work through imposter syndrome, what it takes to navigate loss and grief, and to realize that there's always this ascendance and this rising mm-hmm. that is possible and the rising that is not just for you, but the people with whom you are in community and you are bringing along. You mentioned mm-hmm. working with Christian McBride, right? This Grammy winning phenomenal force. Yeah. And let's be clear, you are a phenomenal force yourself. And yet you've also spoken to that vulnerability of what it means to work with someone for whom you have such admiration and this question of, am I the musician to work with them? How did you work through that to create such beauty for this project? I think I put myself in a position where I had no other choice. Had no other choice but to ascend, but to push through. Um, And when we went into the studio, so there was the moment where Christian and I met many, many years ago backstage at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, I went to see him perform with a friend of mine and that friend was like, you must meet him. Took me backstage, met him. And he was like, oh, nice to meet you and goodbye. 
okay, you know, my time will come if the time is on its way. Um, fast forward to a few years later, I was working on the TD Music, TD Moody Jazz Festival at NJPAC. Um, and through all of the interactions we had while I was working in that space, he recalled that I had told him one day in the past I was a violinist. So let me hear that, that, that music. Um, and in listening to the music, he said, you know, I really think that you could um, uh, 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 be well positioned with an, with an album that supports your, your, your true sound. And I was like, you know what? I think he could be my producer. If he understands that way that I don't understand that you hear something in me and I'm not hearing, I need to trust that. Asked him to produce the album. Uh, he said, yes. Um, and what happened after that, uh, what blew my mind, and I'm saying this to give you the, the context of where I was mentally on that first day in the studio. So I was thinking he's going to produce the album, uh, but not only did he produce the album, uh, we wrote like four original songs for the album. We arranged every tune on it, and then he performed on every single song. And that's wild for someone of his stature uh, to take the time and make the time, not even take, make the time. Some of our meetings about that album happened um, backstage at the Blue Note downtown in New York, uh, at the Vanguard in the green room, <laughs> because we only had the time that we had. And if he was in New York and that was the time, then I would show up, sit uh, sit in, I mean, not sit in, but watch the set um, and then meet up with him after all of the fans and the friends and the guests left. We would meet in those rooms at one o'clock in the morning and figure out when are we going to record this? How are we going to get that done? So all of that to say, and that's a two-year period or so from 2019 up to 2021. Now we're middle of the pandemic. We go into the studio. And by the time we got to the studio, that's when all of the miracles that had happened over those few months hit me. Um, and the imposter syndrome hit like that. You know, like, I'm going to record today with this eight-time Grammy-winning artist. Having me, myself, not really performed much in the last several years wondering about my own levels of success and, and, and hopes and dreams and where my career is really going. But here's this golden opportunity that I can't miss. And I had to push all of that out so that I could then record for two days. We weren't just in the studio for one few hours. It was two days. Um, and I think all that to say, just to go back to where I started, was that the only way to it was through it. I, I had to just say, okay, you, you could be concerned with that, but the opportunity is right now. And if you squander this moment by being so concerned with what you do have, don't have, this focus on what's ahead of you. You have this opportunity right in front of you. And whether or not you think you're 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 worthy of it or not, you must be, because here we are. And that is how I got through literally every hour <laughs> of those of at least that first day. There is one of the, the pieces on this album called Release the Grace. What does mm -hmm. that mean to release the grace, not just to others, but to release yeah. it to yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will layer in that obviously all of this has a spiritual um, foundation. Everything I do has a spiritual foundation. Um, and, and, the challenge with the pandemic is that we were so far removed, we had to really make up a decision about, you can be removed from the things that you thought were God, but where do you find God with it? 
And so I'll just lay that as 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 an, as an informative statement for what I'm about to say, um, which was that one of the sermons that I I started I was I was watching at some point in the last year I think it was this summer. Actually, I remember exactly what she had on. Um, Pastor Sarah Jakes Roberts uh, was preaching, and this was if anyone anyone listening has seen this particular sermon, it was the one where she had very very long straight hair. Um, and a, she, I can't describe the outfit, but it was very colorful as if it was like paint swatches. And in that sermon, she talked about, it's time to release grace. It's time for God to release grace over all things in your life. And I was thinking about um, several different instances I had seen recently, um, just d- interactions of people within my circle, where it just felt like folks could just be more kind to one another. <laughs> You know, so on the spiritual side, there's the grace of God, but on the on the earthly side, there's how do we share that grace with others? And so in naming the songs on the album, there were certain messages I wanted to send. And for release the grace, it was about release yourself, release the grace you have within you, share that with others. And for that particular song, I mean, that one's a, a vibe, right? So the release of grace is like, you know, it gets you bopping in this and the other. So it's not meant to feel heavy. Every Everything I might've said might feel kind of intense. Uh, but I think, I think that's the beauty of, um, of that, of what grace means. Like if you can release several different things from you and then welcome other things in like grace, everything then it gets light and fun, easy, chill. It's so much more fun to be that way. <laughs> you have accomplished so much throughout your career and throughout your life already. You have performed for presidents. You have worked with amazing artists. What is it that you're most looking forward to in 2024? Hmm. I'm most looking forward to rising in 2024. Um, you know, for for all of the accomplishments, for all the things I've come through, I just know that there's a lot more to come and I want more to come, right? Um, and and although even, even as you said that, I kind of sat for a second, like you actually have accomplished a fair deal in your lovely career. Uh, for me, I think there's a lot of goals on my list that you haven't yet mentioned because they haven't happened yet. Um, radio play and performance at performances at jazz festivals and performing in and around Europe um, uh, and countries in Africa. There's so many different things that are on that list for what I'd like to accomplish, working with different artists, right? So her, uh, we, we recorded a version of Best Part um, on the album of her, working with, with various artists across genres, um, arriving to the Grammys and being recognized for with one. You know, so there's a lot of dreams and I'm I'm praying, my prayer is that this year, 2024 is where um, a great deal of them get uh, become manifest. We are excited to see your journey continue personally. I'm so excited for you. And so when I see you on that screen at the Grammys or performing in Europe, I'll get to say, I remember her win. What a fantastic journey you have before you. Kirsten Stevens is a violinist. Her latest album is called Queen Rising. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Kalila. 
You're listening to Kirsten Stevens' piece, Release the Grace. Coming up, we'll hear what it's like to DJ at the inaugural ball for Hartford's new mayor. And later, we'll talk to the creators of an upcoming documentary about the New Haven music venue, Toad's Place. They hope the film shows audiences that there's so much more to Connecticut than many people realize. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're talking about Connecticut and music. For many DJs, sexism affects everything from the support they receive to how much money they can make. In a 2016 article from The Guardian, an anonymous DJ explains how she created a male alter ego to serve as her manager. After doing so, she says, her fees more than doubled. Here in Connecticut, DJ Kiana Coachman Strickland is known as DJ Q Boogie. She works to address misogyny in the industry by supporting women. She's a professional DJ, female DJ coach, and owner and founder of the Female DJ Association. Kiana, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. I'm excited to talk with you because you have taken a love and passion and used it not just to create a career for yourself, but really to create opportunities for other people. So before we talk about that phase of your journey, let's get right back to a basic question, which is, how did you get into being a DJ? I always say when I was young in my parents' basement playing those records, playing the Prince, the um, Luther Vandross, the Anita, I feel like I was a DJ back then, (laughs) but I just never knew it. But I always loved music. I always loved uh, the art of DJing. I always loved dancing. And um, I just never thought that DJing would be something that I could do because I didn't see a lot of women doing it. But I was doing an event and one of the DJs that was DJing the event for um, me, I asked them, I was just watching them and watching them and watching them because I never really, uh, I guess, saw it up close and personal. So I was just watching them. I was like, I want to learn how to DJ. I want to learn how to DJ. And um, he was like, well, I'll teach you. And I was like, okay, really? So. He was like, I was like one of the first people that actually like followed through with learning how to DJ. 
The piece that you didn't mention that I think is critical for you as a DJ is that it's not just about learning the equipment and the music. As a DJ, you also have to learn people and the crowd, oh my. right? Yes. How do yes. you do that part of tapping into, as a DJ, you might think this is going really well, but if the crowd is, is not responding, you have to adjust. What was that piece of your journey of learning how to navigate and move a crowd? So when I was learning how to DJ, um, my, my DJ coach, I would say, um, or my mentor, um, he was like, as soon as when people start walking in, pay attention to like who they are, like, look, look at like, um, you know, their age range, look at um, who's tapping their foot, who's bobbing their head to what you're playing, like really pay attention to that. And once you play that song that really has them you know, hype, you know, to, to kind of like stay in that range, you know, stay in that genre for a minute and then play around and just see where it goes. But reading a crowd is just something else. I spoke with Kiana the day after the inaugural ball for Hartford's new mayor. I did an event last night and um, it was the um, mayor's inaugural ball and it was huge. And there was a lot of different people from different backgrounds there, different ages. So I really looked at that and I'm like, okay, I could play, this is how we do it. I could play the Bee Gees. I could play some soca. I could play some, you know, suavemente. Like I can do those because it was a, a nice group of, of people there. So, you know, um, you just really need to look, pay attention, pay attention. You know, what I hear from you is this commitment to learning, to watching, to listening, and to responding. And that is a skill of a, a good DJ that can really make or break their career. But it also, I think, Kiana speaks to the need to adjust and adapt and realize the power of music, as you said, to bring people together of all backgrounds who wouldn't normally maybe interact with each other, but on the dance floor, they mm. can come together to do that. How did yes. you make that move from, I'm going to be a DJ who's doing different events and opportunities with different communities to this is now going to be the career. This isn't like a side gig. This is the career and the passion that I'm moving forward. Was that a big step for you or was it natural? You know, so I've been in corporate all my life. You know, I've always been in the insurance industry. And um, when I started DJing 15 years ago, it's just, I was, I just never thought that I could do it full time. It wasn't a, a thought in my mind because I just didn't think that it was possible. Um, so, you know, after working my job and just being like sitting at that desk and just <laughs> feeling like, yo, this cannot be my life. This cannot be it. But this passion that I have for music and the art of DJing, like it just hit me so hard and it just feels so good. I was like, you know, maybe this is something that I could do full time. And being around other women entrepreneurs that were doing like different things like photography and, you know, different things, having that like group of women around me to empower me and to say, you know, Q, you can do it. And I'm like, what am I gonna, what am I, what would I be? And one of my friends, I remember saying, a professional DJ, that's what you are, that's what you would be. And I was like, like she was literally yelling at me too. And I'm like, you're right, you're right. So um, I think it took, 
I, of course I was scared, scared out of my mind to leave my corporate job where I was making a good income, but I wasn't happy um, to, you know, really having my own business and building my business. So um, I really started focusing on um, doing different types of events to, so I could figure out what I really wanted to do, like what types of events I really wanted to do. And one thing that kind of came naturally is to do women empowerment events. So I started doing those and kind of really getting a name out there for myself for doing these types of events. And that picked up very well. And then I got the money up and the courage to leave my job in 2019. And um, I did it. And then the pandemic happened. <laughs> Let's talk about that, right? Because I love music. Anyone who knows me knows that music is my language. And it means that I've been doing events since college. Like that's how I paid for textbooks in college. I have lots of friends who are in different phases of the creative industry. And when that pandemic hit, it was, what do we do? This is how I make my money. And so as you talk about DJing full-time in 2019, saying, I'm going to leave my corporate career to do this. You have not just focused on how you chart a path. You created this female DJ association to create community for other people while still realizing this is my livelihood and I've got to figure out what do we do? How do those things come together? The pandemic that shut down realistically just about everything to also let me create a space, curate a space where other people can come together and build. What was that for you? So when that happened, like, so right before I left my job, like things were going great for me. Like I was getting events left and right for the next year, everything. It was like just a lot and it was great. So I really felt more comfortable. I was scared, but I felt comfortable um, leaving. So when the pandemic happened, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what am I supposed to do? So I knew right then and there, I had to pivot. I had to do something different. So I started DJing on Facebook, you know, they was cutting out Instagram. Then um, I started going on Twitch. And, um, but even, even during that time, and even before that, people would be reaching out to me on Instagram because they would see me and be like, you know, how are you still doing it? Because a lot of people, just they they couldn't survive if this is what they were doing full time they didn't they didn't know what to do so um they were reaching out to me and started asking me questions so i'm always going to give people information i think we're all here to help each other so i'm always you can ask me anything you want i'm an open book i'm going to tell you so um I, one one other thing like when i was on twitch I, you know i was going on twitch and i would be in other djs um chats saying like oh great job yes i love this song whatever they'd be like yeah what's up homie my dj q boogie homeboy you know like they would just automatically think that i'm a guy you know um and you know they, they couldn't see my face and you know I, I don't know if they did that with other female djs or whatever but they would automatically assume i was and it happened so many times and i would be like angry typing like i'm a female dj i'm a female dj and they're like amazed or whatever so i was like you know what i want to create this community it was just of female djs a sisterhood to talk about and to educate them to talk about resources and tools and help them enhance their skills and if they have any questions pricing whatever i'll be there and i'll be able to help them with it 
I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, 2023 was the 50th anniversary of hip hop and there were all of these celebrations and MC WD was a pioneer MC called out those celebrations for overlooking the role of women, not just as MCs, but as DJs, as graffiti artists, as dancers of saying you can't celebrate culture while overlooking the people who were essential to that. And I wonder how much things have changed because it did, it doesn't feel like it's changed much. You talked about on Twitch how people just assume that you are a man. Are there other examples that you would share with our listeners to say, look, we're here, we're doing it, we're contributing, and we still have to fight against this erasure? I mean, up until this day, like I can go to an event, bring my husband with me. He, he Most of the time he's with me. I call him my equipment manager. Um, and we could be carrying equipment into the event together. And they would automatically go over to him and say, where do you want to set up? And he would be like, I don't know. She's the DJ. So it, it, it still happens where people just automatically assume that the, the guy is the 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 one that's doing everything some even when i'm dj i'm standing there djing the event the whole time and you know we would be walking out and they would look at him and say you know you did a great job you guys did a great job and looking at him I'm like hello <laughs> did you not just up there you know so um is 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 definitely we're, we're definitely still kind of overlooked but I do think that it it has come a long way. You're seeing a lot more lot more female DJs on social media and just around doing different events, and it's a beautiful thing, you know. Um, I think that I think we we do deserve um, a lot more respect, and we will get it. We will get it. It's coming, you know, um, one day at a time, and. Um, I'm just here to make sure that happens, you know, so. As we conclude our conversation, I'm struck by what you just said. You're here to make sure that happens, that women in that field get the respect that they deserve and are able to pursue their passion. What would you say to women, to girls, to young people who are like, that looks like something that I would like to do and get into, but I don't know how to do it, or I don't know if I can do it. What's a word of advice you give them? When I was in my twenties, I had um, reached out to um, someone, I'm not gonna even, I I reached out to someone and I said, you know, I wanna learn how to DJ. I think I wanna learn how to DJ. And so this was a long time ago (laughs) and someone that I did look up to and she said, why would you want to do that? It's so boyish. Like, why would you want to, it discouraged me from learning back then. And I try not to think about where I would have been if I would have started back then. And I just try to think of the now, but what I want to say is don't let anyone discourage you from doing what you want to do. Um, any, 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 and anything, you know, but especially DJing, you know, we don't see a lot of female DJs. So when we don't see something, we don't know that we can be that, you know? So try not to 
get discouraged. Be who you are. Be your best self. Um, and reach out to reach out to me. Reach out to other female DJs and ask them. Um, there's a lot of us that will help you and guide you and be a mentor to you. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask any questions. We're here. But my big thing is just don't let anyone discourage you from doing what you want to do, especially if it's something that you love and have a passion for. Kiana Coachman Strickland is also known as DJ Q Boogie. She's a professional DJ, female DJ coach, owner and founder of Female DJ Association. Kiana, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to one of DJ Q Boogie's sets. Coming up, we discuss an upcoming documentary about Toad's Place. It's a small venue that's hosted some of the biggest names in music history. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about music and Connecticut. For nearly 50 years, Toad's Place has been entertaining local music fans. The New Haven Music Venue has been home to a surprise concert by Bruce Springsteen and hosted Bob Dylan's longest show. In 2021, Toad's Place owner Brian Phelps co-wrote a book about the venue. It's called The Legendary Toad's Place, Stories from New Haven's Famed Music Venue. The book inspired Andy Billman and Joe Franco to work on a documentary about Toad's Place. Andy is the director and Joe is one of the producers. Andy and Joe, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Andy, talk to us about the history of Toad's Place, that the two of you said, we need to tell this story and get this story out more broadly. I would say there's two streamlines. So the first one is the musical and the artists themselves. It's a very impressive list. Whether you listen to the rap of or music or hip hop of Snoop Dogg to Drake to Post Malone, all the way through um, Johnny Cash into the mirror, you know, to the amazing 80s of whether it was U2, um, late 80s, early 90s, Dave Matthews Band, um, Huey Lewis in the News, and oh yeah, Billy Joel, Springsteen, and you know, Bob Dylan, I mean, geez Louise, Rolling Stones. And it's pretty big. So it is definitely a music camelot of history, which is very, very important. What I also think is very important is how this is a local community thing and a meeting place where people actually go to that is very non-corporate. It is not run by Ticketmaster. Today, still, they do things that have a snap of a ticket where you go inside, um, where you actually can actually feel as you go in there. There is no barcode. <laughs> you know, they are not doing things where they they are not here to price point out their audience. They're actually keeping their prices pretty affordable, which sadly for artists and musicians is not the case today. Most times, people are unable to afford concerts. They love the artists. They love Taylor Swift. Ticket brokers have already raised the prices even before you get your hands on them. So Toads is actually a place where you can get in there locally, feel comfortable, whether you're white collar or blue collar. And on, and what's great is when you walk out Toads Place, you're behind you is Yale, but around you is the city of New Haven. So you can feel comfortable whether you're wealthy or poor. You don't have to feel like, you, there's not a stuffiness, nor there is an uncomfortability, no matter what class you are. 
I think that's a great thing about toads. And that's why it's so important to tell that because places like this are not existing anymore because of COVID and because of money. Joe, let me bring you in here because Andy just tapped into something that when I first moved to New Haven 20 years ago, I was totally surprised to discover Toad's Place because it is literally at the doorstep of Yale and two blocks away from the New Haven Green. And in some ways, Toad is at the intersection of this tale of two cities within New Haven of extreme wealth and privilege. And then this sort of rugged commitment to we're going to move forward and do what we have to do. How does that speak to you, Joe? And also how you were able to convince Ryan Phelps to say, okay, tell this story and let's help people understand what's here. Well, I I think the best way to approach this, first of all, would be to talk about how did I get Brian Phelps to to, um, buy into this? And I will tell you, Kyle, that it was um, by chance, uh, a friend of mine from uh, Fort Lauderdale sent me Brian's book. And he said, Joe, you need to look at this. And and I had stepped out of television. I said, no, I'm not interested. I, you know, that I mean, it's a great story. I, I spent a lot of time at Toast, but no. Uh, but he goes, well, I'm going to have Brian send you a copy of the book anyway. So Brian signed a copy, you know, enjoy the reading. Good luck. I read the first 20 pages. And I dropped the book and I picked up the phone right away and called Brian. I said, and he picked up the phone and I went, hello, uh, uh, Brian Phelps, please. He goes speaking. I went, Brian, you don't know me yet, but I hope you will. My name is Joe Franco. I said, what are you doing with your book? This is your legacy. It's a story of New Haven. It's a, it's a story of music and entertainment in this state. I went, what are you doing with it? And he stopped and, and the rest is history. And the uh, first time I met Brian for lunch, I want you to know I went to Toads and I met him outside the front door. I hadn't been there in 40 years. I said, Brian, if you don't mind, I'd like to walk in by myself. He opened the door. I walked in. I took a deep breath and I went, I've been here. This is Toads. <laughs> As you're telling this story of this small venue that brings people together under the music of that beautiful experience together. This isn't then just a story about toads. It's a story of smaller venues that can focus on what really matters without all of the fluff and pomp and circumstance. How does telling the story of toads help us better appreciate that? Sometimes you fail to appreciate what brings simple things together that brings commonality. I'll bring you one example of Price is Right. Price is Right is a wonderful game show that has very flamboyant 70s colors, yet people still watch it. Why? Because it's easy to understand. It's very rootable. You feel like you can do it. And and, and the only thing that's changed, it's not Bob Barker, it's not Drew Carey. I mean, very, very simplistic changes. Toad's Place, all they're doing is now they do a lot more dance clubs. They actually bring in YouTube bloggers. Why? Because that's what the audience has changed to. And that's a credit to Brian Phelps. So they do things. It's like in the 80s, it was all bands. There was a ton of small bands. And the, there was a punk rock movement going on in the late 70s, early 80s that swept through Toads and swept through New Haven. So he listened to that audience. He brought in a lot of punk rock acts through there because that's what your audience wanted. Well, credit to these places is, like Toads, is they change with the times. And corporate, it's very easy to do that because you can control the price point. 
And I give Toads a lot of credit. A lot of places like this close because they're not changing with the times. And a big axe, like, why would I get an eighth or a tenth percent of my make if I can just go to the Oakdale? Or my gosh, if I even go to like, God forbid, like Madison Square Garden, like that's a 5%. Like why? Why? And But there is a reason why. And that's the connectivity. And there is, I will say this, there seems to be more of a separation between celebrity and reality. They seem so, like you can't even touch like some things right now. And Toad's, you could probably touch a Marion Meadows the other day. You could touch a Chris Webby. You could do certain things. It's like, oh my gosh, like I felt like you were there. And that's what brings all the greatness of Toad's. Like there really isn't a lot of barriers. There's plastic chairs. They're set up in an oval. The, the, the people come on stage. They do their thing. That's so nice. It's not velvet ropes and, you know, all that stuff. And I just think that in society has been lost because of the importance of money and the drivenness for all that kind of stuff where you're losing the touchstones of a toads. you got to have these things. And Madison Square Garden is just too many people. All these other places are just too many people. You're in there. You're in there to get adult beverages. Hopefully, have a good time and get the hell out of there. At Toads, it's almost like a kitchen table. I think what you just gave me was the complexity and the simplicity of why yes. Toads works. That right. formula of you can be proximate to the artist, and then. Often you step outside and you're having a slice of pizza together after yes. a night of drinking cheap beer because you feel like we're building community together. Right. And Joe, the other piece that Andy mentioned, though, is, is this constancy of change. The yep. TV industry has changed. Music has changed. The yep. ways that people fund their projects has changed. And your group is just wrapping up a Kickstarter campaign to do that, which 30 years ago, you know, we didn't think about that as a way of saying, if you appreciate this art, you can be a part of it, too. How has this process of conceptualizing the documentary and thinking about the story you want to tell and how you fund your ability to do that, how does that connect to the overall approach that you and the team have? Well, I, first of all, I, I just want to quickly dart back to something. And I think what's the, the, one of the most important things about Toads and about New Haven and, and, uh, and about the, the fans who go there is they leave the politics at the door. They come in where we don't, where we have this big partisanship around around the country, and people aren't talking or they're arguing. At Toads, they don't. There's there's love, there's passion, there is emotion and excitement with that commonality of music. Uh, so I think to answer your question, as far as our the project and how we get people to 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 basically adapt and 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 accept what we're doing, um, again, it's the passion. It's the commitment that we all have to carry music on from generation to generation. And, and I, I think whether it be from a marketing, a business, uh, a fundraising, uh, right now we're, we're looking to uh, corporate America in New Haven to support us. Why? Because, again, it's a community that we're trying to endorse here and trying to celebrate that 50 years. Yeah, I, I want to hit off what Joe said. We're celebrating small clubs and music. We are celebrating the city of New Haven. We are celebrating Connecticut that can sometimes be, feels bland from 50,000 feet. 
where it's like it's Wall Street, it's Cash Belt, you know, cities that aren't doing so well with crime. And oh yeah, there's this Martha Stewart thing and New Englanders. It's kind of all. I I think this film will actually give some definition to Connecticut, some edge, because I think Connect I think Connecticut is a is a state that has edge that gets lost in between ninety five and those things I just described. So here's an opportunity to really be like New Haven does have a lot going for it. It is the first design city since the 1600s for a reason. There is some things here that actually Connecticut pride. There is this, and this is one of them. And there's many other things in the state. Well, what's interesting is during the uh, Yale Harvard game, Andy was at Toads, and one of the things that he found that as uh, as uh, alumni walked by with their children, they talked about, "Oh, I remember Toads. I spent a lot of time here," and 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 they started to tell the stories. And every fan has a story. Yes. And, and you know, for us to really tell the Toad story, it's about talking to those who used to work there, the, right. the former employees, the bartenders and the bouncers and and just people who people have have, have met their their mates there and, and have been, and have uh, got engaged there. I mean, there's just so much story here. Yes. We're going to have so much fun telling this story. To New Haven and to the country and to the world. I love that idea because everyone that I know in New Haven has a Toads story. Yep, I, I yes. have my own story that I won't talk about on air because I need to maintain a particular image. Uh, but it is, <laughs> it, it is. Hey, I was if you would like, like to tell it off the record, or I guess. you know, I, you know, I, I don't go anymore. I let my students do what they do because we all have our own journeys of growth. Yeah. But it, it is. <laughs> it is such a, a key reminder too about the beauty of of place and space and yep. of focusing on what really matters. And so it's my hope that with this documentary, it brings people together to be reminded that often what binds us is greater than what divides us and what more powerful outlet than music to do that. Agreed. Andy Billman and Joe Franco are part of the creative team behind a new documentary on Toad's Place. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. A very special thanks to Meg Fitzgerald. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcast. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>